Hello church, a scripture reading is taken from Matthew 2, 19-23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's our continued theme that we're going to see again and again as we read through the book of Matthew. And so uh, if you haven't heard, we're reading through Matthew in 2021. And at the back, you'll notice there's these uh, great reading plans. There are these physical copies. You can also get these online at the website or through the app. But inside, you've got it laid out reading for each day. You can follow it along. It's a little different. So let me just take a moment and explain to you kind of how this will work. You have the beginning of the week kicking off with the sermon text. It's the same text that we'll teach from each week. Then that week we'll review with the last reading day, kind of going back to that sermon text again. And there's some kind of supplementary psalm and proverbs around that review. In the middle, a few things that are pretty neat, okay? First is what we're calling a gospel loop. Uh, we're going to read through all of the Gospels a couple of times and just saturate ourselves in those four Gospels in 2021. The first time through, however, we're just going to focus on just Matthew. Get our mind around Matthew, then after that we'll go chronological through the Gospels. You're also going to see two more days of reading that are going to follow a different theme. We call those the cross-reference readings. Now those cross-reference readings are really cool. Matthew, again, more so than the other Gospels, pays very close attention to show Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the prophecies. And what we're going to do with those cross-references is go back into the Old Testament and show those connections, and we'll read through that. And so it's a great reading plan that's just going to saturate you in Jesus' Gospel ministry and specifically there in Matthew, and the references that kind of bounce back and forth uh, that set up Matthew and even follow Matthew into the New Testament. So just a lot of good stuff there, excited about it. Pick up a reading plan on your way out. If you prefer the digital ones, they're available online through the app. You'll get them. But it's really cool. In chapter 2, we've already seen that Jesus is the fulfillment of many of these Old Testament prophecies. He is David's descendant that's born in Bethlehem. He's God's son who is called out of Egypt. He is the promised hope in the midst of captivity and suffering in Ramah. And so we're seeing all this play out. And though he is born in Bethlehem and though he's called out of Egypt, Jesus will begin his ministry as a Galilean. He'll begin his ministry as a Nazarene. Verse 19, chapter 2. 
But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So the first thing you're going to notice is the immediate connection back to verse 13. You remember that last week. Joseph has a dream. In the dream, he said, hey, listen, Herod's seeking to kill the baby. Flee. Go to Egypt. They go. This time he has a dream. He's in Egypt because he's already fled. And he's now told, hey, Herod and all those who want to kill the baby, they're dead. Go to Israel. And so you get this dream and it's this command, go back to Israel. So I want to do something. Just, just lie, just take a, a moment. I want to introduce you to somebody. Um, this is Llama. Check this out. Is, isn't that the cutest hound dog you've ever seen? So this is my dog, Llama. All right, now we've had Llama for, I don't know, seven, eight years. She's, she's getting older, okay? Llama has this five acres that's just kind of fenced in. And Llama's pastime is chasing squirrels. She does it all day, every day, and she trees them, and she howls, and my neighbors love it. It's, it's great, all right? So here's the thing. I've watched Llama again and again. She only catches maybe one squirrel a year. She's horrible at it, but she loves it. And one of the reasons she never catches squirrels is she'll be chasing one and see another one because there's always more than one squirrel. And she'll be like, uh, and then that one and they all just run away because she's so excited so I've thought to myself if someone would just teach this dog to stay focused on one squirrel she would catch more squirrels you know what I think about it though I've thought more and more about it I don't think she cares she just enjoys chasing them that's how my mind works okay so here's the truth as we walk through this morning there are going to be multiple squirrels we won't be able to finish every thought it might not all make sense, but hang in there. It's going to be awesome, okay? So take good notes, but we're going to bounce in and out of the Old Testament. We're going to kind of bounce back into some different passages and prophecies. We're going to chase a few different things, and we're going to see some themes in this short little passage about Nazareth that's really going to be impactful for us and challenging in a lot of different ways. And so at the end of the day, here's what I hope the Holy Spirit does. As we go throughout the day and we worship and we're in the Word, we walk away with some different things. And so you might walk away with something a little different than the person next to you because we're going to chase a few different points. So first one I want you to see is kind of our big truth in our Advent series, Jesus followers obey the King. Now throughout chapter 2, Joseph is a great picture of obedience. It's not the primary theme of chapter 2. But you can't help but to see Joseph's obedience and kind of be in awe and see it as an example. First, you're going to see his obedience is immediate. It's immediate. Imagine someone tells you, leave your home. Go now. Go tonight. <laughs> Don't you think? You would try to rationalize that away, reason it away. W would you argue that there must be another way? God, you're, you're sovereign. You're in control of all things. You can protect us. We don't have to go. You can find another way. See, 
when we see Joseph's immediate obedience, it can't help but be a mirror for us in our, our compromise. That we convince ourselves that we might be missing something and we don't have it all. And so we wait, we defer, we compromise. Joseph's obedience is marked by this immediate action. Second, his obedience is in faith. It's in faith. He didn't understand everything. Now, for some of you, that's really hard. And I'm not going to point fingers, but you know who you are. You're the people who like to know all the details, have everything in control. You seek this illusion of control. Do you know what he's told? Go to Egypt. Here's what he's not told. Where you'll live, where you'll stay, how you'll survive, what food you'll have to eat. Will anybody be your friends? Is it going to be safe? He's not told any of that. Go to Egypt. Now he's just told, return to Israel. Do you, do you not catch how general that is? See, so many of us think, I'll be obedient, but you've got to explain it first. I've got to understand every detail. I need the full plan. I can't go step by step. Third, his obedience is ongoing. It's ongoing. We see that. We like one-time acts, something we can do, we can measure, and say, yes, I did it. But oftentimes, when we look at obedience, we realize that it is an ongoing pursuit, not a single act. It is connected in a season of obedience. So Jesus' followers obey the king, and Joseph is a great picture of that, and we can see that here in chapter 2. Also in chapter 2, you get to see a lot of pictures between Jesus and Moses. And you get to see these just kind of undeniable connections that come up here in chapter 2. Verse 20 might be the most explicit. It's almost a direct quote just contextualized for Jesus of Exodus 4:19, where the Lord said to Moses and Midian go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead now again seeing Jesus as kind of this second Moses here in chapter 2 and throughout Matthew it's a great study but it's not the main point it's not the main thing and so always keep this in the back of your mind the main thing is the plain thing and the plain thing is the main thing and for Matthew that is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament keep that in your mind as we walk through this gospel verse 22 but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So the child, Joseph, Mary, have all been laying low. Now there's no internet in Egypt, right? Uh, they are a blessed people. They have no 24-hour news channels. Like, what a blessing that must be. Uh, but they're laying low, and information just is a little slower. And it's like the phone game. It gets kind of distorted from person to person and so just general information travels a little slower and so when Joseph is told go back to Israel how much he understands about the context and the climate the political climate of Israel is unknown we don't know that but I imagine he knows some things but not all things and it 
it reads as if as he's going, he realizes he can't go back to Jerusalem. Let me try to explain a little bit of why. So Herod the Great, in the later years of his life, wants to kind of continue to solidify himself with Rome. And so Herod puts a golden eagle at the entrance of the temple. And this pleases Rome, but oh man, do the Jews throw a fit. I mean, you're putting an idol at the entrance of the temple. And there were two prominent Jewish teachers. Uh, you have to think of them like modern day, just really influencers. The whole nation kind of likes these guys. They're constantly around uh, young students, think uh, late teens, early 20s, mid-20s, teaching and instilling the law. They're just valued for their wisdom, their interpretation of God's law, and how Israel should respond. And obviously, they are greatly offended that there is now an eagle in front of the temple. And so they realize what we need to do is get all of our young college students, right, all these young adults to protest and to do something. And so they kind of rally this group of people. I've taught college students since I was 25 years old. Every professor just at heart loves that William Wilberforce quote. You know, it's that one that it just acknowledges that somebody came up to him once and said, hey, we've got some guys who would like to revolt. Do you know a good cause? And it's the idea that when we are young, we are both filled with zeal and naivety. And in that, we have this passion and excitement, but we're a little naive. And so, by the way, if you're here and you're in that group, just understand there is some great gift and power in your zeal and your passion. Almost every great revival that has happened throughout history has happened through young people. But also be wise and self-aware enough to know you're a little naive too. And so that connection is there. And so he rallies this group of young people. They go to the eagle and they destroy it. They come in with axes. Um, some interpretations or some historians say it happened right in the middle of the day. And they come up to this golden eagle with axes and they just start wailing away at this thing. They chop it into pieces. It goes everywhere. It's a complete mess. And this is obviously a problem for Herod. What is he going to do? One, he can harshly punish all those who are involved, but this is a lot of people, and they're young people, which is going to really burden their families. And if he deals harshly with them, he's going to deal with the revolt from the Jews. But he could kick the can. He's older. He could kind of just not worry about it, and he could go a little bit softer. And essentially, that's what he does. By the way, leadership lessons, selfish leaders always kick the can to somebody else, right? And Herod is exactly that. He is a selfish leader. Again, he's old, he's not well. So what he does is he kind of assembles these leaders around, and he gives them the I'm disappointed in you speech. He quietly deals with those who were kind of directly involved, except for the two teachers. These two teachers, he has to make an example of. And so he has them killed publicly. Um, most agree they're burnt alive. Well, this sets up just a great fuel for unrest across Israel. These two teachers were beloved, and Herod has killed them. And this is over an eagle. 
But he was soft enough, too, that he kind of left room for these kinds of protests will be tolerated. And so Herod the Great dies, and his reign is divided into three of his sons. Antipas gets Galilee, that kind of area north of uh, Judea, Samaria. Philip gets the area east of Galilee, and here Archelaus gets Judea and Samaria. All right? Now, Archelaus has inherited this mess. He didn't start it, but he's inherited it. And like a lot of young leaders who has, honestly, he hasn't done very much except being born to the king, right? He feels entitled to all that his father had. And he's already upset that all his father's reign is kind of divided out among his brothers. And he wants to be recognized as a king. But Rome thinks otherwise. And frankly, the people think otherwise. And so there's this debate on whether what like his title should be and how much authority should he be given. And as Passover approaches, he has this great idea that he's going to set up this elaborate Q&A with the people. They're going to be able to come in, ask questions, he'll give answers, and his hope is he'll win over the people. Rome will see his great leadership and exalt him to be king. He shows up, I mean, dressed out like he is just like Ric Flair on a way to a wrestling match. I mean, the dude is uh, strutting. I mean, he looks good, right? He's trying to look the part as the king. I don't watch wrestling. I don't even know where that came from. I just, uh, that just right there. We'll, we'll call that the Holy Spirit. That was good. Um, <laughs> and so he got all these people together, and they start asking questions. And at first it's going well, but of course this is going to go bad. And the first thing the people really get caught up on is they begin to demand a new high priest. Herod had appointed a high priest that was currently there, and he just wasn't holy enough for them. They wanted someone who had a higher view of the law, who practiced more holiness. And so they're beginning to demand for a high priest. This is not where he wanted it to go. But then the people began to demand that those who killed the two teachers would be put to death. Now, Archelaus realizes this is getting way out of hand, and he says, listen, I just need you guys to fall in line, help me become king, just, and then we'll deal with all this stuff. And he goes and he leaves. The people continue to stay there mourning the death of these two teachers. And like many times, mourning becomes protest. And so word gets back to Archelaus, he sends a small order of troops in, to get control, and the people stoned them, and they kill some of the troops. Well, on hearing this, Archelaus sends in the entire army and kills 3,000 Jews. 3,000 Jews in Jerusalem during Passover. Cancels Passover, sends everybody home. So now you get the context when Joseph is on his way back and it says he is afraid to go there because Archelaus is reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod. And so it's confirmed for him in a dream, don't go back to Galilee, verse 23. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, Nazareth is a small town. It's kind of in southern Galilee between 
the Sea and say uh, the Sea of Galilee. It's right there. It's maybe 500 people this time. It's a small town. Why Nazareth? Okay, the simple answer, simple answer, it's where Joseph, Mary lived before they went to Bethlehem for the census. You'll see that in Luke chapter 2, that's described in verses 1 through 7. So if you remember the account, there's a census. Joseph, Mary go to Bethlehem. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. They live there until God tells them to flee to Egypt. So there's some kind of connection here in Galilee. They probably know some people. They've been there before. They lived there before. It's safer than Bethlehem, which is right outside of Jerusalem, so they go back. That's the simple answer. But that's not the answer that Matthew wants you to catch. Matthew gives you a more significant answer to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. Now notice Matthew's wording is a little different than all of his other quotes. It's plural. He, he quotes prophets, plural. It's not even really a direct quotation of one prophet. It's more like a summary from many different prophets. You say, how do you see that? Okay, first, there's no prophecy in your Old Testament that he shall be called a Nazarene. It's just not there. No, it's not. There's a lot of bad interpretations trying to figure out how to make it and force it in, but it's just not there. The most reasonable interpretation is Matthew is revealing Nazareth, a specific place, as the fulfillment of a thematic prophecy that the prophets, plural, communicated and the people understood and clearly knew in first century Israel. He just did this a few verses before with Rama and Rachel. But now Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is making a clear proclamation. So let's go through it and see what he's doing, and, and it'll make sense. The first thing, the prophet said that the promised king would come from nowhere, appear as no one, and be despised and rejected. That's kind of the theme. He wouldn't come as a king. The promised king wouldn't be recognized that way. The Messiah would appear from nowhere special. He wouldn't be a noble. He wouldn't be famous. He wouldn't be uniquely noticeable. Instead, he would be unrecognized, unappreciated, mocked, ridiculed, and rejected. You see this in a lot of the Old Testament prophecies. Two you'll be familiar with, Zechariah 9 through 14 kind of lays this out a lot, but in verse 9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. But listen to how he comes, humble and mounted on a donkey. On a donkey. Isaiah 52 through 53 kind of breaks this down. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not second the prophet's message was known among first century jews they knew this message 
they, they knew it so well that they'd even exaggerated it and misinterpreted it. In other words, it had become such a common expectation for them, they had even ran it further in misrepresentation, misinterpretation. And you can see that in John chapter 7. Jesus had been talking to them, and they reply back in verse 27, but we know where this man, Jesus, comes from. And when Christ appears, the promised one, no one will know where he comes from. No one. And so they had, man, I'm just going to keep with the wrestling themes. They kind of brought up this whole idea. You remember, you've ever watched wrestling as a kid, and those crazy, creepy guys were from parts unknown. Remember that? Like, that's such a weird thing. Like, this is what they're saying. No one will know where he comes from, and we know he's from Nazareth, so that can't be it. And so there's this, again, exaggeration and this misinterpretation. But what you see there is they clearly understood the Messiah would not come from any place special. He wouldn't be recognized. He wouldn't be in a line of kings in that sense. He would come on the scene quietly. Third, Matthew proclaims the prophet's message is fulfilled in Jesus' standing as a Nazarene. So this message that's been communicated by the prophets, passed down to God's people, Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, you and I don't get to do this, Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, proclaims with certainty the fact that Jesus is a Nazarene is the fulfillment of this prophecy, this aspect of his coming. So Matthew's saying that, again, Nazareth kind of captures this. Matthew 2, verse 23, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, in first century Israel, Nazarene has become a derogatory term. It's not a good thing to be called a Nazarene by the time Matthew is writing this. It's a negative term. It's a derogatory term. It means useless. And it had its root all the way into, again, Jesus' ministry. If you'll remember Nathaniel in John chapter 1, when Jesus is trying to uh, uh, come on the scene and kind of first introduce himself, they run to Nathaniel. Philip goes and says, hey, we found the Messiah. And in chapter 1, verse 46, Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> I love Philip's response. Well, come see. Come see. But you can see there's this common thought. This is the middle of nowhere. This is Nazareth. As time goes on, it grows connected to Christ and Christians. And it becomes a derogatory term used to describe them. By the time we're at the end of our gospel in Matthew, you'll come back to this. If you remember Peter, when he denies Jesus three times, one of those is when a servant girl calls him out. And she says in Matthew 26, 71, this man was with Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus of Nazareth. 
By the time you get into the end of Acts, Paul, with his life on the line, is going to be accused. And in Acts 24, 5, they will say of him, For we found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene. Number four, Jesus the Nazarene modeled self-sacrificing obedience. And so us as Jesus followers, we are called to set our minds to do the same. He submitted himself to the will of the Father, even to be a Nazarene. Paul unpacks it better than I will, so I'm just going to let him do that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus the Nazarene set aside heaven for Nazareth. Give that just a moment. For us who are so captivated with our comfort and are so self-centered, he set aside heaven for Nazareth. He emptied himself, Paul says. Therefore, let us have this mindset. Jesus the Nazarene set aside worship for ridicule. Jesus took the form of a servant. He didn't take the form of a king. He didn't take the form of some noble. No, he, he took the form of a Nazarene. In the middle of nowhere. Therefore, let us look to the interest of others. Third, Jesus the Nazarene set aside his life for your life. Jesus humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death. He gave his entire life in a pursuit of obedience. He didn't just act obediently once. It wasn't just an action. Watch this. His obedience was part of his identity. It is who he was. Therefore, may we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. May we acknowledge that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Obedience, holiness was part of his identity. And so let us acknowledge the only way we will be obedient, the only way we will be holy is to die to self and find life in him through faith. It's the only way. He did what we cannot. What a glorious Savior. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, verse 5. 
team's going to come on up as I read. But just worship with me. Verse 5, but he who was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we are like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus, worthy of praise, worthy of all worship, allowed himself to suffer for you and I. He allowed himself to suffer. And so us, you, me, who is worthy of shame, who is worthy of ridicule, redeemed by grace through faith in Jesus, take this mind to lay down your life in worship, in obedience, faithfulness. See, Jesus chose others over himself. He was oppressed, shamed, and ridiculed. He was a Nazarene that you might be redeemed. He was a child of man so that you and I might be a child of God. He is worthy of our faith. He is worthy of our obedience. He is to all nations. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore God has exalted him. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess.
not think of ourselves above suffering or discomfort. But may we in obedience follow you. Repent. Lay our life down for the advancement of the gospel and for your glory this day.